1996, some pretty memorable music came out. Genuine released Pony. Cheryl Crow sang If It Makes You Happy. And Local H kept it copacetic with Bound for the Floor. While all of that was going on, Major League Soccer was getting its inaugural campaign underway. In that season, the Columbus crew made the playoffs, but lost in the first round against the Tampa Bay Mutiny. In 1997, 98, and 99, the crew would make the Eastern Conference Finals, where they lost every time to DC United. They also lost in the playoffs again in 2001, 2002, and 2004. You might remember we covered that 2004 loss in episode one. That list I just read you is the totality of Columbus playoff history prior to 2008. The crew had never won the Eastern Conference, which meant they had never gone to MLS Cup. Frankie Haydick knew this playoff history. He could see that the crew were on the verge of something special in 2008. And while I don't know if he was aware of all the great music that came out in 1996, he and the rest of the crew locker room were definitely aware of one famous song from that year. The band Cake, on their album Fashion Nugget, had produced an all-timer called The Distance. And that song had a lyric that was of particular motivation to the 2008 Columbus crew. They had that specific line, is somebody left with the cup, and we were like, oh, no one's taking our cup, this is our year. And it was, we were blasting that nonstop on the bus uh, all throughout the, those playoffs. Columbus was dead set on keeping everyone else's hands off the cup. But standing in their way of making history was one of the key figures in crew history. And in the process, the Columbus crew would participate in one of the most hard-fought playoff battles Major League Soccer had ever seen. This is the story of how Columbus won the cup. I remember sharpening my, my studs before the game um, because we were playing against Blanco. Man, there was so much on the line that that game felt bigger than the world. For me, that was the game of the playoffs. Oh, I felt nothing but dread. We gotta play the fire, that's our rival. Historically, never had much success against them. The kick in the nuts potential for this game was like astronomical. You know, you felt bad for the guy as a human because he is such a good guy, but he was wearing Chicago Fire Red, so have that. Episode four, Treason. I'm J.D. Smith. We were five minutes outside of, in that game from a Steve Lenhart goal that came in on a super stub and he did throughout that entire year. Man, he scored a goal to make it 1-1 and everyone forgets that game. Um, man, we could have uh, really come back here at home going to goal down. We scored the last five minutes and it was a Lenhart goal and we did that often. Frankie Haydick brings up a good point. Before we jump into the legendary Eastern Conference Finals match, we should probably talk about the series before it. The crew were facing Kansas City in the first round of the playoffs. That series was a home and home, which means the combined score of the two games would be used to determine who won. The first game took place in Kansas City on a field that was not a soccer field. You're playing on a field that's small in dimensions. I think of Yankee Stadium now and Community America Ballpark, temporary home not too far from where Sporting Park was going to be built. That's Neil Sika. He's been calling Columbus Crew games for many years, and he was on the radio call that night against Kansas City. You just got the feeling that if they had fallen behind by a goal, how would they respond? Would it be like they did through the course of the regular season? Uh, or is this playoff demon, because this team hadn't won a playoff game in six years, 2002, uh, if that was going to reappear and they were going to be facing uh, a deficit going back to Columbus? Both teams played to a scoreless draw after one half of play. Even though the game was without any goals, it was physical, a style that the crew could certainly deal with. But on a small field with weird dimensions, the speed advantage that the crew had on the wings over many MLS teams was somewhat negated. Making matters worse, Kansas City got on the board first. Here's Neil Sika on the call. Dispossessed by Scoloto. Scoloto back to Evans. Evans, little toe poke forward. And Gavin came to the top of the penalty arc. Good reinforcements coming from Evans and Haydock keeps it alive and then Evans gave it right to Arno and the corner attack for Kansas City starts the other way. Arno right up the midfield circle. Now kicks it out wide to Lopez. Lopez in the near left channel. Here's his service header and a goal from Arno. Oh, a brilliant finish and it's one nothing Kansas City. Thankfully though, Kansas City decided to shoot itself in the foot. 
with a poorly timed foul from one of its best players. It's played away to the sideline. Ball is still in play as Padula goes down on a challenge and a red. A red card has been given in the 75th minute. And I believe it's Hercules Gomez. It is Gomez. And Gomez, who's committed two hard fouls on Padula tonight, that ball got deflected. And it stayed in on the touchline. While Gomez slid for it, he stopped. Padula noticed it was still in play, ran 10 yards up the field from his left back spot after his teammate Moreno had went out on the sideline. And an intentional trip and takeout of Padula, at least deemed by Jorge Gonzalez, gives Columbus a man advantage with under a quarter hour to play. The player who took that red card, Hercules Gomez, was a U.S. men's national team player who would go on to have a long career in Mexico. He was certainly a valuable part of the game plan for Kansas City, and due to the red card, he'd have to miss game two in Columbus. Of course, his absence would also leave Kansas City down a man for the remainder of game one. And with time running out, the crew decided to deploy Steven Lenhart. One of the most popular crew players in team history, Steve Lenhart was drafted in the fourth round of the 2008 MLS Super Draft out of tiny Azusa Pacific College. A six foot one bundle of elbows, knees, and poofy blonde hair, Lenhart was a forward who brought a violent presence in the box. Steve Lenhart was just as likely to score a goal as he was to get screamed at by an opposing player or an official or both. Maybe that's because Lenhart never saw a pass he couldn't get to, a challenge that was too tough to take on or a face that didn't need to get an up-close view of his elbow. He was the definition of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, though, as Steve Cirque will explain. It's just impossible not to smile spending time with Steve Lenhart. Like, he, he's a guy who just loves life. You know, he, he just kind of relishes whatever he can, he can get out of life. I remember when he was here, he used to go to, like, a retirement home and crochet beanies with the old ladies there homies hats or hats for homies like they would like crochet like beanies for people and that's just kind of like the zest for life he has and i know he became like kind of like a villain around mls because i mean he you know kind of had a physical you know style of play and i mean he was fearless and he was physical and he was kind of an agitator and it used to just make me laugh because like you know fans of other teams like he just became like this villain like oh i hate steve lenhardt i was just like oh my god if you just knew this guy he's just impossible to hate lenhardt was the crew super sub in 2008 he was brought in often if the crew needed a late goal or, more importantly, needed to hold a one-goal lead. His energy and ferociousness was combustible when combined with frustrated defenders who'd been dealing with the crew's varied attack for 75-plus minutes. And against Kansas City, he was inserted to provide a spark. In stoppage time, Steve Lenhart did just that. Real ping-pong battle right now at the top of the Kansas City penalty arc. Finally controlled from Carroll. Carroll goes out wide to Padula. Stoppage time. Padula's cross. That is blocked and knocked down out wide by Arno. He's been everywhere tonight when they've needed him. Came back to a work. Tried to snip it back inside. Found by Lenhart. He strikes. And he's got to go. Steve Lenhart found a loose ball. And he's taken the crew out of jail in the 91st minute. Unbelievable. Oh, this kid has had the pension for brilliance in the final moment. And you get a funny feeling that things like that don't happen just out of the clear blue sky. I brought up uh, John Bloom. He had a great line for him earlier in the season uh, when he scored against Chicago. He goes, Lenhart is the miracle worker. They got into a good situation there with, with Lenhart making plays at the end of games. He had the late goal in L.A. to tie it. I mentioned the Chicago one. So it was Fantasy Island for him in a lot of ways that season. The ironic part is, right after Lenhart scored, they gave up a free kick that was nearly a penalty at the other end of the field, and the wall blocked it, and they got out of there with a tie. I think that was the pivotal point just in terms of the entire playoffs for them. They're going back in the situation where they have a tie as opposed to a deficit, and then the demons of, say, the second leg in 2004 when they were coming back home one nothing in a deficit against New England. Here we go again type, type philosophy. So that kind of set the tone. In the second leg, the crew made it known early they weren't going to let Kansas City back into the series. Seventh minute, great ball. Brian Carroll hit it like Will Trapwood of in modern day and uh, put Evans 
who was making these deep-lying runs. He had a few of those in that game. Lobbed it over Kevin Hartman coming out of goals. So that kind of takes the pressure off. You know, you're still the favorite. You're at home. It's 1-1. You don't have to worry about away goals because that didn't exist at the time. But then you can play with a little bit more confidence. And ironically, as I say that, and they controlled the game, I think it was 13-6, the final shot number. But Kansas City almost tied the game seven or eight minutes later. It was a low-driving ball, and Hesmer kind of like walked into an Abe Thompson folly of it inside the six, kind of hit it with his knee. They kind of were unscathed the rest of the way. There was a brief little chance, I think, at the end of the first half. But they, they were in full control and then put the hammer down the crew defeated Kansas City by an aggregate score of 3-1. to one. That meant for the fifth time in their history, Columbus was going back to the Eastern Conference Finals. Meeting them in those finals was the Chicago Fire, one of the crew's fiercest rivals. And now on that Fire team was the man who was the face of the Columbus crew for so many years, Brian McBride. We'll relive one of the biggest games in crew history after the break. The Chicago Fire in 2008 weren't just Brian McBride. In fact, he didn't even join them until August of that year. The Fire were actually built around the attack of a different aging superstar from North America, one who was as synonymous with his home country as Brian McBride was with the United States. That player was Cuauhtémoc Blanco, one of the best players in Mexican soccer history. He played most of his career for Club America, one of the iconic clubs of Mexico, where he was prolific, scoring 125 goals over his 333 games. Blanco was also the first Mexican player to score a goal in three World Cup tournaments. His popularity remains high even after his retirement in 2015. He ran for public office in 2018 and was elected governor of Morelos, a state in southern Mexico. However, as much as Cuauhtémoc Blanco is beloved in Mexico, he's equally despised by fans of the teams he plays against. Partially because he's so good, I mean, that's undeniable. But also because he is an agitator. He torments, he pesters, but mostly, Cuauhtémoc Blanco complains. To the refs, to the fans, to the endless void that hovers over the stadium, Blanco suffered a lot of fouls in his career in the way that a WWE wrestler suffers a lot of elbow drops. Blanco would have made a tremendous luchador as he made every bump, knock, and kick to the shins look as if his life might be in severe jeopardy. Naturally, the crew wanted to limit Blanco heading into the Eastern Conference Finals while also not getting lured into a game-changing foul. Blanco was a master at drawing those. Here's Chino Padula talking about one of his many matchups with Cuauhtémoc Blanco. Yeah, one of my best friends. <laughs> that guy talk a lot inside the field. He feel like he can intimidate myself. And I say, no, you know, I play in Argentina, I play, in, and he feel like I was 15 years old and he talk all the time. And he talked to him back. I cannot repeat what kind of words we talk each other. That was funny because in, in those two years, every single time we play against Chicago Fire, we tie 2-2 every single game, away and at home. And I remember that game, I, we were talking for the first half all the time, you know. I say hello to his mom, <laughs> and and he remember uh, my mom too. And I make a a nice tackle. I didn't touch him. He crying uh, like a baby on the ground, but I didn't touch him. And uh, I think the referee was Marufo, and he showed me straight that record. I think, and I feel very disappointed because also he was laughing on the ground. And, and after that game, I think Marufo was suspended because he received a T-shirt from, from Cautemo. That story sounds unbelievable, but it's true. And there's a little more to it. Cuauhtémoc Blanco went into the referee's dressing room at halftime of the game Gino's referring to and screamed at referee Jair Marufo. Then in the second half, Marufo gave the infamous red card to Gino. After the game, Blanco returned the favor by giving Marufo his jersey. I mean, it's not a bag of cash, but it's still pretty ridiculous. Marufo was suspended for two games by U.S. Soccer. Blanco, meanwhile, received no punishment from Major League Soccer for essentially trying to bribe an official. Anyway, back to Gino. But I couldn't wait because I knew like two weeks later we had to play against Chicago again. And I say to, to one of the assistant coaches, I say, I will let you be aware. I tried to 
play my personal games against Blanco, and I think it was a, a good battle. And I play tough, and I don't want to say people play aggressive. I play hard, but uh, I think I have a good, in a good way, a good revenge. And I think we won that game, and he couldn't play only 60 minutes. Other than Blanco, the 2008 Chicago Fire had some other stalwarts as well. There was Justin Mapp, whose speed and creativity on the left wing caused problems for many teams in MLS. Chris Rolfe was a solid MLS player who had nine goals for the Fire that season. John Thorrington had played for Huddersfield Town in England and was a savvy veteran presence who could provide some dangerous offense. Meanwhile, in the back, Wilman Conde and Bakari Sumare were two big defenders who could be physical and tough to break down. And in goal, there was John Bush. Bushy played for the crew from 2002 to 2006. He was in goal when the crew won the U.S. Open Cup in 2002. His tactical awareness and positioning made up for the fact that he was a goalkeeper who was shorter than six feet tall. But perhaps most importantly, John Bush was also one of the many purges of the Siggy Schmidt era. Undersized and constantly looked over, Bush played with a constant chip on his shoulder. In 2008, John Bush was named MLS Goalkeeper of the Year. McBride, Blanco, Bush, the fire were full of guys who could cause issues for the crew, a fact that Frankie Haydick knew very well. I, I never wore, I remember sharpening my, my studs before the game um, because we were playing against Blanco. Blanco was, right, he was, he was part of that team as well. And I was like, dude, this guy, if there's any guys that show up in big games, it's Quadra McBlanco and Brian McBride. In my mind, that stadium was sold out. That's how loud it was, and that's how, how much energy there was in the stadium. I mean, to me, and it, it felt like it was there was you know, it was like the a U.S. Mexico game. Man, there was so much on the line that it, that game felt bigger than the world to not only us but I think to Columbus and to me. Crew fans generally recognize three rivals to varying degrees. Oldest of old school fans will recognize DC United because of those three straight times with the crew were eliminated in the Eastern Conference Finals. There are also some who acknowledge the Trillium Cup, a more or less manufactured rivalry with Toronto FC, which was an idea generated by the team's front offices. But the biggest rivalry that has carried over throughout the years was Chicago. From multiple fierce battles in the US Open Cup to being one of the crew's closest geographic rivals, the crew in Chicago usually end up in physical contests to test both teams' metal. And yes, I know, hell is real. The new rivalry between Columbus and FC Cincinnati looks like it will become one of the best in the league. But you have to remember, in 2008, no one even knew what an FC Cincinnati was. The fire were hated by crew fans, who had a designated chant involving relieving oneself on the flames of Chicago. Here, take a listen. Sean Mitchell, who covered the crew for the dispatch for a number of years, remembers that atmosphere heading into the Eastern Conference Finals. That was, for me, that was the game of the playoffs. That was just, you know, it wasn't a, a packed stadium, but the crowd that was there was a good crowd, uh, really into that game. It was cold, it was nasty, it was, uh, yeah, it really, yeah, that was the game of the playoffs, and for me it was. Meanwhile, Steve Sirk brings up the anxiety that gripped many crew fans going into that game. Oh, I felt nothing but dread. So as a Cleveland sports fan, you know, I'm all about the drive, the fumble, the shot, you know, so on and so on, Jose Mesa in 1997. So I'm feeling nothing but dread because I'm like, okay, we got to play the fire. That's our rival. Historically, never had much success against them. They had been to four Eastern Conference finals. It never won one. So it's going to be against a rival that they've historically struggled against. And now they have to go through, like, two players, you know, that meant a lot to crew fans. So, I mean, not only McBride, but you had John Bush and goal. The kick in the nuts potential for this game was, like, astronomical. You know, going into it, I can already see it in my head. Like, oh, Brian McBride's going to score a hat trick. John Bush is going to have a shutout. Love those guys, but, you know, that, that would just be the most painful way for this dream season to end. Everyone was concerned about what McBride could do against the crew. 
Dwight Burgess, the voice of the crew, discussed the mixed emotions that evening on the game broadcast. He's so nice, Dwight, that he probably made his hotel bed this morning. <laughs> he is, he's a class act. That's all you can say about Brian McBride. The guy is a class act, and he knows what he's up against tonight. He knows that there's going to be some... Uh, some choice words for him. They're going to have some fun at Brian McBride's expense, but win, lose, or draw when this game is over, uh, Brian McBride is still going to be a favorite son for the Columbus crew. So why did crew fans hold Brian McBride in such high regard? Once again, here's Steve Sirk. If you had to draw it up, you couldn't have drawn it up any better. I mean, a number one draft pick, obviously a kind of a marquee talent, you know, I mean, good-looking guy. He's just a very polished person, too, so he always represented the crew in the right way, you know, whether it was, you know, media interviews, you know, events around town, like, you know, he, he carried himself well. I mean, he was just a genuinely good person. I mean, here's a guy who's going to World Cups and, you know, doing all this stuff. But, you know, when practice is over, he, he's the guy picking up cones or, or moving goals. And, you know, they could tell, you know, other players, you know, could turn to a rookie and be like, look, if Brian McBride is out there doing it, like, you should be out there helping too, you know. So he, he led by example, you know, in pretty much everything he did. So you kind of have all uh, kind of all those attributes, and then you know the very first game in crew history, Brian McBride scores one of the most ridiculous goals you'll ever see. You know, Bo Shani, you know, punts the ball from the edge of the crew's 18-yard box, and, and McBride runs onto it, heads it up in the air over the defender, turns on the defender, runs onto the ball, and then volleys it into the goal. And, and the only time the ball touched the ground was when it hopped just short of the goal line. You know, the ball's in the air the entire length of the field. And it was such an astounding goal. And, you know, if you're in the stadium that night, your mind's just blown. You're like, did I just see that? That'll put you on the map, right? You know, so Brian quickly just became, I mean, he was the star. He was the, you know, you would kind of see him everywhere. And he was kind of the first pro athlete in Columbus to kind of make a name in a, in a big way like that. I mean, he was well-known throughout the community. And, I mean, people who didn't even know the crew knew Brian McBride. The pride you would feel in Columbus watching Brian McBride play in the World Cup, or, you know, with the national team. You know, you're like, that's our guy. You'd be watching the national team and they'd be talking about, oh, yeah, Columbus crew this, Columbus crew that. You know, so, you, you know, you, you'd be hearing your city and your club getting mentioned in these worldwide, you know, sporting events. Look, McBride, Brian McBride is an absolute class human being. But he was wearing Chicago Fire Red. Here's Duncan Outen, a member of that 2008 team who played with McBride when he was in Columbus. When I came to Columbus, he made me feel like, I think he was part of the reason, a big part of the reason, him and Mike Clark and the guys we, we've talked about previously. I think the culture at this club, inside the clubhouse, people outside don't realize that, yeah, maybe they don't spend the big bucks, maybe this and that. But back then, through my entire time at the team, pretty much, the culture of guys coming in and getting welcomed and stuff, because they did that for me, I did that for people moving forward. And you know what? I think everyone looks back on their time in Columbus and loves Columbus. You know what? It's because the how welcome these guys like Brian McBride and that made you feel. So for me, it was it was weird because he was wearing Chicago Fire red. And as much as Columbus loved McBride, they were like, "Dude, you're not Columbus anymore." And you know, there was a treason banner that the Nordeck had made, and they were making chants against McBride, and they were making, and this this was a guy that they loved, and this was when I went, whoa, dude, these guys are freaking my style, dude. They're so passionate. They care about the team, and if you're not playing for that team right now, and you're against us, man, there's a fan base that they don't care who you were before. Uh, at this moment, they 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 you were trying to take something from them that wasn't going to be taken. And um, as big as and as nice as a guy and as professional as as cool as McBride is, and this city knows it, and those fans knew it, they were going to do anything they could to get him off of his game because they weren't letting a championship being taken away from us. And uh, that that meant something right there. And that was that was what what really uh, I was interested to see um, before that game how the fans were going to react. To him and the reaction was let's get him off his game frankie haydick wasn't exaggerating the fans really had a banner that said wanted for treason with a picture of brian mcbride's face of course it wasn't treason the man grew up in a suburb of chicago so him going to the fire was basically the only other place than columbus that would be considered a homecoming and let's not forget he was being paid handsomely to do so that's how pro sports work but for many crew fans, McBride felt like a family member. 
He was the first face of the young franchise, and in many ways, he grew up as a soccer player alongside an organization and fan base that were taking their first steps as well. So when McBride came back to Crew Stadium suited up for, of all teams, the Chicago Fire, well, it felt like a betrayal. That's totally not fair to Brian McBride, by the way. But then again, sports aren't fair. They just try to be. And that treason banner definitely didn't go unnoticed by its intended target. Once again, here's Sean Mitchell. You know, McBride, you know, in my dealings with him throughout the years, he's been great, generally great with the media. But he he was a little prickly around that time. He did not like the fact that Columbus fans kind of turned on him. He, he, I think he was hurt by that a little bit. They've got to get past this guy to win a championship. So they were, you know, they're going to they're gonna give him the business. And uh, he, he, he was a little, I, he took that personally. You know, he was a Columbus guy through and through, and then here he is on the, on the rival uh, Chicago Fire coming in here in, in, a, in a conference final. It was, it was a big deal for crew fans, certainly. I mean, one hand, I thought the banner was hilarious. And the other hand, I'm also just like, man, it just sucks that this is what it comes to. I mean, this is Brian McBride, and I get it. And, you know, and add to that, you know, the year previously, he almost came back. Wait, what? Brian McBride, the now despised traitor who surely hated Columbus with every fiber of his being, he almost came back to Columbus in 2007? Mark McCullers, former crew general manager. Is that true? We had come very close to signing Brian uh, to, to bring him back. Very close. And um, it, it didn't come together. And at the end of the day, you know, he went back and, and signed a contract. So there was a little bit of that. You know, and there were talks with Fulham. His contract was going to be up in the spring of 2007, you know, with Fulham. And he had an offer from the crew. And he, he thought he was coming home. He thought he was coming to Columbus. And talked to Fulham and basically, like, told them, like, yeah, either, you know, need a new contract or I'm signing this. He said that those were the only two places he wanted to play were either, you know, Fulham or Columbus. I, I was a little pissed, frankly, that he ended up signing with Chicago and not with us. And uh, so we, so I wanted to win badly, as did everybody. You know, it's, it's interesting to speculate on if we'd assigned Brian what that would have, would have meant. That was that was right around the time that, that we were looking, Guillermo and, and some other things. Um, so if he had signed that contract, there's a good chance Guillermo never plays for Columbus. Possible. Possible. You know, but at the time, I think also some fans kind of felt like, oh, maybe he used the crew as leverage. And, and if you talk to Ryan, he was like, no, he seriously thought he was coming home. It obviously worked out for the crew because they get Guillermo. There, there's, some, there's some, you know, dominoes that fell after McBride decided to say that worked out really well. One player who had a particularly interesting relationship with Brian McBride was Danny O'Rourke grew up in Columbus while McBride was there. And in the Eastern Conference Finals, he'd find himself matched up with the legend. And even younger, when I was, I think, like 10 or 11 years old, I, it might have been uh, his first year uh, with the crew. He may have been injured. I think it might have been when he broke his face one of the million times. I was actually doing rehab from, from a broken leg in the same, uh, the same place he was, and I was starstruck when he was in there. I didn't really get starstruck that easily so he was a huge inspiration and and role model and someone I looked up to growing up and just to be on the same field and him coming back on, on our home field with a, a a team that he was so uh, that he was that he pretty much built it was pretty cool but he wasn't just uh you know the only player in that team I and mean, they were they were solid they had you know Blanco and Chris Rolf and um you know Thornton was good for him Logan Paws Gonzalo Cigar so they were they were a really solid team and you know, you look at the MLS Cup, and it was a, obviously a big win for us, but that Eastern Conference final against Chicago was almost the MLS Cup for us. We knew uh, how important that was, how tough those games were uh, during the season against them. Um, so I just remember being, uh, I don't know if I've ever really been as amped up for a game as I was for that Chicago one. As the pregame festivities wore on, Neil Sika and Dwight Burgess broke down the matchup on the crew broadcast. The midfield, do you see that as the major key for both teams? I, I do. There's been talk for a long time about the strength of this Chicago team defensively. Clearly, that is represented in large part by John Bush being selected the uh, goalkeeper of the year. But keep in mind, there's only a three goals against difference 
between these two teams. Mm -hmm. And Columbus, in the you know, at New York, played a lot of guys you don't normally play. And I don't mean that as a criticism, Neil, of anybody in particular. But that three-goal difference could have vanished on that late September night, October night in New York. So I don't think there's a big difference between these two teams defensively. Offensively, they go about it a little bit different. You have you have the three-headed monster, Chicago Fire, Columbus, lots of parts that work together. The place that I think potentially there is a difference is in the center of the park, in transition. Brian Carroll has done that job all season long, playing laterally between the touch lines, plugging up the transition passing lanes, preventing the opposition from getting back at Columbus quickly. I think that's going to be important tonight. Eddie Gavin, I think, over the second half of the season has gotten stronger and stronger. Robbie Rogers, we all know about. I do think if there's an edge for the Columbus crew prior to kickoff tonight, it is in the midfield, and if they can establish that, then they're going to win this game. If Columbus cannot hold down Chicago in transition and Blanco begins to determine what happens, then Columbus is going to be in some trouble. With that, it was time for kickoff. Many of the players I spoke to flat out said this is one of the most physical games they've ever played in. To be sure, the game featured two battle-tested teams with tons of firepower. And as it got underway, the fans went right after Brian McBride. Listen to this audio and see if you can tell when McBride gets his first touch on the ball. The crew gold with black numerals and lettering. Glidden, the presenting sponsor, they kick off and Scolotto deposits back to Carroll. And as he so often does, plays into the defending end to the left where it's kicked away and up the right-hand side to McBride. Columbus left to right in this first half immediately. It's Chad Marshall who spins down Blanco, the most fouled player in the league on the right touch line in the crew half 10 yards oh in. those boos it was almost like a moment where columbus grew up as a sports town if any pro athletes meant anything to columbus in the era between 1995 and 2010 it was two guys brian mcbride and rick nash the star of the blue jackets and now in 2008 columbus was saying we care more about the crew than we do brian mcbride as it should be as the game got underway the fire put the crew under attack almost instantly John Thorrington cut a ball inside from the left sideline and uncorked a shot that went wide of the net in just the second minute of the game. A few minutes later, Justin Mapp cut in from the right side and fired a shot as well, prompting a William Hesmer save diving to his left. Chicago was on the front foot until Guillermo showed up. First, he drew a foul in the 19th minute, and the ensuing free kick took a couple of deflections before sailing over the crossbar. A moment later, Guije jumped all over a clearance from Wilman Conde and stole the ball. He had a half volley that went right to John Bush. In the 25th minute, it was Guijay again. Gavin. Skeleton. Couple of cuts. The shot! Skinned the crossbar. That's J.P. Della Camera on the ESPN broadcast. And as you could tell, Guillermo just missed putting the crew in the lead. It felt like the tide was starting to turn in the crew's favor. But then, all of the sudden, it wasn't. Tries to break up a pass that comes back towards Blanco. He keeps it alive. Back heel the map. Amazing where he knows where his teammates are positioned at all times. Trying to funnel here with Hayduck and Evans. It's Map across, serves it in. Header McBride inside the six, and he floats it into the back of the 1-9-2. It's Map who set him up, and it's 1-0 Chicago. Columbus slow to respond. Haydick had stepped up, couldn't get the ball, fell to the ground. Chicago throw in, and they immediately exploited the vacated space. Evans tried to get back, but Mapp was there first, flighted a beautiful ball right to McBride. Boy, crew fans have seen Brian McBride do that. Danny O'Rourke is just really up against it, having to mark McBride on flighted balls. The guy who got beat by McBride was, of course, Danny O'Rourke. So I asked him, what went through his head when Brian McBride scored? Did any of that stuff about his history with the club pop into his mind? No, in the in the moment, you don't really think of that stuff. It's can't afford to give up another one. So you just kind of buckle down even even harder and uh, try to try to shake it off as quickly as possible. Uh, you know, I keep setting myself remember that, you know I maybe maybe could have done a little better on that, but he's a world-class player who scored probably a bunch of those in the Premier League before he came over. So um, he's 
try to have the shortest memory possible and, and get back to business. While Danny says he wasn't thinking about it, Cirque says he definitely was. Oh, I'm just like, of course. Of, of course this is what's going to happen. There, there it is. One nothing. Brian McBride will get the goal. John Bush will get the shutout. Like, everything I was dreading about this game, just to make it hurt the most. And not because of those guys, but just because they're people we love. And, and now they're, you know, the things that will end up standing between you know, us and a potential MLS Cup. And this is why I'm not a professional athlete. Because I think that goal, like, I was just done. I was just like, ah, you know, like, like, I just can't take it. But, you know, as that crew team did over and over again that year, I was just like, oh, okay, we're down one nothing. Let's just get right back to it. Uh, but, what, yeah, when McBride scored that goal, I can't believe it's actually happening like the way I was dreading it would happen. Meanwhile, Frankie Haydick felt like he had to bear down. Uh, it actually motivated us more. We got more. I started. We started getting more scrappy and more scrappy. And I remember me and Quatamac going at it, and him going, you know, saying stuff to me in Spanish I don't even know. And I was saying, "Hey," I remember pointing at my cleats a couple of times and showing him the bottom of my cleats, and I was pointing at his uh, shin guards, going, "Dude, this is coming at you." And that's who we were. And 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 that mentality took us, um, you know, took took that game. The crew were down by a goal. But they weren't panicked. 16 times in the 2008 regular season, the crew gave up the first goal in a game. Nine of those 16 times, they found a way to either tie it up or retake the lead. Plus, the crew didn't just scrape and claw to get a late goal in those games. They had this amazing ability to almost flip a switch and destroy their opponents. For example, there was the game against the Earthquakes on May 10th. San Jose had scored a goal right before halftime to make it 1-0. And then the crew decided to drop the hammer. Robbie Rogers got the tying goal in the 73rd minute. Then seven minutes later, he got another one to put the crew in the lead. Not to be outdone, Brad Evans added another goal in the 82nd minute. That's three goals in nine minutes, which is lightning quick. The crew went on to win that one three to two. The San Jose added a goal late, but Columbus was beginning to show just how devastating their attack could be. That phenomenon wasn't a one-off either. Against Kansas City on July 17th, the crew found themselves down two to nothing by the 24th minute. Then, boom. So not only does he get his first professional goal, but he gets it here. Quick shot, and there is Scalotto. How quickly Columbus is back. Scalotto will have a quick throw in. Rogers, they can get numbers forward. Columbus in gold. Scalotto behind Jewsbury, into the box, lays it off. Moreno goes down the ball, saved by Hartman, and now it goes in. It's time at two. Hey. To the middle for Marshall. Chad Marshall, the crew lead. As you heard JP Della Camera on the ESPN broadcast, Guillermo scored from a free kick in the 26th. Alejandro Moreno tapped in a Guille assist in the 33rd. And Chad Marshall got on the end of a Guille corner kick in the 38th. 12 minutes, three goals. They'd gone thermonuclear yet again. The crew did this again and again in the regular season of 2008. August 16th against Dallas, down a goal midway through the second half. Brian Carroll scored in the 62nd. Brad Evans netted in the 65th. Crew win two to one. Two weeks later, the crew were in Dallas, down after giving up a goal in the 35th. No worries. Ali Moreno tallied in the 37th and Eddie Gavin put him ahead in the 40th. Two to one yet again. Also, Guillermo assisted on all of these goals because he was a freaking monster in 2008. Sorry for fanboying out, but damn, he was good. The point here is that Columbus didn't panic when they gave up a goal, even if it was in the playoffs against a bitter rival, scored by a club legend who was now playing for the enemy. It didn't matter. The crew knew they could fight back. As they went to halftime, Gino Padula says they weren't worried. And remember, we play well the first half, but we were down, one nothing. And some fans asked me in the past, how, how was the dressing room at the halftime? And I said, well, I drink my coffee like every game and, you know, relax and because we knew we would come back. And I think the first 15 minutes we scored two goals um, and we dominated the game. So uh, in that game we show everyone, I think, uh, we have a very good chance to, to win the MLS. As the second half started, the crew looked to have a different attitude. They took the play to Chicago, and in the 48th minute, 
Eddie Gavin drew a foul in the crew's attacking third of the field, set the stage for one of the greatest moments in crew history. One of the most indelible images and, and maybe my favorite of all time is the image of Chad Marshall over Brian McBride scoring that goal in the Eastern Conference Final. I think that's one of the classic images in the history of the organization. 10 yards off the right sideline, Scalotto, 19 assists in the regular season. One so far in these playoffs. Hand in the air, right-footed ball, floats it high, Marshall, headers! Marshall from Scalotto! It's been the combination all season on set pieces. It is their time, level at one in the 49th. You could see it coming, Neil. Chad Marshall, a couple of good looks in the first half and just didn't get the redirect touch he wanted. He made no mistake on his first chance here early in the second half. Chad was all up over him, banged the hitter. Couldn't have been more happy and, you know, laughing at, at Brian McBride because he was wearing Chicago Fire Red and Chad just pretty much teabagged him. What a guy to do it to um with Chad's goal, I mean, he deserved every minute of every second of glory of that goal because his year that year, and even the player that he's been since then, he's still still been making players of the year. So, uh, um, I mean, we are so blessed just to have him and have his presence, and um, what a great moment for him, and um, yeah, and for and for Columbus. So I was in the radio booth when I was in there with like. Mark McCullers and Brian Bliss, and that goal went in, and I, I mean, I was just losing it. I'm, I think I was like pummeling Dwight and Neil while they're trying to talk on the radio, and you know, McCullers was pumping his fist, and I still remember Bliss just looked at me, and he was like, it's like he dunked on him. Yeah, it was just like Chad Marshall killed it. Yeah, Nightmare Slayer or something. Well, I was pissed at him from earlier when he left me, you know, Martin McBride one-on-one -on -one in the box, and he, you know, I tried to body him, and he... It is patented Brian McBride soared right over top of me and scored a goal. So it's about time he made up for it and, and, and scored the game time goal for us. You know, Chad, not only is he need to defend of the year, and they probably need to rename that that trophy after him. Um, hopefully they, they will soon. But, um, you know, his, his ability to, to not only find space in the box on, on free kicks, but to to rise to a certain level um, and score those goals, even in big moments. You know, he, he's a very, um, you know, quiet guy and doesn't really say much, but, I mean, you could see the passion on his, on his celebration after that and what it meant to him. And, um, yeah, it, it, it was just, it, it kind of felt like it was coming then. Like, after Chad scored that goal, it was like, there's no way we're, we're losing this game. And um, sure enough, we didn't, but yeah, that was, that was one of those goals that I always remember, and um, hopefully there's a, a few more of those to go with uh, with Seattle. <laughs> you know, afterwards, you've won, you're happy. In reflection, you feel bad because he's a, an absolute class player, and, you know, that never happened to Brian. <laughs> you know, we were lucky enough that Chad timed it right and it happened, but Brian never lost hitters, right? He was an absolute monster. So, you know, you felt bad for the guy as a human because he is such a good guy, but he was wearing Chicago Fire Red. So have that. Just like that, it was tied up one-to-one. -one. And then that relentless crew attack got to work once again. Columbus with possession. Chicago half, right to left. Ball is slipped forward, near left channel. Here's Rodgers, left-footed cross, served into the area. Moreno went down, it opened up some space, and then it's cleared right up I-71. Back to Scalotto's, 40 yards out. Ball into the area for Gavin. Now he serves it back across the face of goal, a little bit too premature. Rodgers keeps it alive. Scalotto runs onto it, battling with Conde, and then Conde dispossesses. Roth going forward as Chicago builds from their midfield and then sends a pass right to the boots of Marshall, dispossesses on the crew. Dribble up the left-hand side of the field. It's Rodgers. Gavin is open all the way on the right, but the diagonal cross goes right to Conde. Oh, Rodgers could have ran from here to Clintonville. Scalotto finds Moreno, busts into the area, Bush comes off the line and then rescues the ball as Moreno was trying to outburst Sumare. Wow, what a difference the half makes. Anytime you have a guy like Guillermo on the field and you have, you know, arguably the, one of the most underrated players in MLS history and Eddie Gavin, um, you, you have a chance. And so we just had to, you know, buckle down, not give any more 
any more chances, really, and, and that's what happened. And, and, you know, our quality came through with those type of players. Finally, America's hardest-working team got the breakthrough they were looking for. Look at Scoloto trying to post up on Sumari. Keeps it alive. Flick forward into Gavin. He's got a goal! 2-1! A ball! Moreno to Gavin! It's 2-1 to the home side! And it's Scoloto! Are you kidding me? Posting up Sumari right outside the 18! Eddie Gavin is the forgotten man. Scoloto, Moreno doing the work in the box. The speed of Robbie Rogers on the far side. Eddie Gavin is the guy that teams tend to forget about. What a touch, though, by Moreno to put him in. That's kind of Eddie in a nutshell, isn't it? The goal was harder than it looked. He brought it down. It was a perfect finish. You know, it wasn't was like he crushed the ball. You know, It was just a perfect placement, side netting. And I guess that's Eddie, right? You know, he did a skillful thing in a way that didn't necessarily raise a lot of eyebrows as you know in the moment that it was happening and then it was just like oh wow that was huge he he was a guy that um and, you know and, and there's not many of these in the world uh that he's faster with the ball than without it so when you're you're playing him a through ball he's faster with the ball at his feet he takes off for whatever reason that moment in his head when he gets the ball he moves faster than when he can go on a straight sprint um, he's a guy that if you took the did a 40-yard dash with a ball or without a ball, with a ball, he'd be quicker. Um, so, And that's an underrated talent, and that's something you can't teach. And Eddie did that stuff every day in training. I know maybe he didn't you know, have the, the lucrative stats, but the, the quality that he brought to every training session, you know, if you weren't you know, out there watching every day or on the field with him, you, you didn't really realize it. And, you know, talk about soft-spoken players like Chad, I mean, multiply that times a hundred and that's how Eddie was. He just went about his business um, and you know, it, it, you got a little glimpse of it in that goal but you know, Chad and Eddie, those two in, in, in my opinion and hopefully some other people share it but uh, I think the amount of exposure or um, caps they got with the, the national team um, I just think I think we wasted two uh, two players that could have had could have helped uh, us at an international level because you know those are two of the best that I ever played with. He didn't want anything, you know. He was so happy of just being out of the limelight, but he was on a team that there was a bunch of limelighters on there. Eddie Gavin scored an incredible goal, but it wouldn't have happened without Alejandro Moreno and Guillermo Barroscoloto doing the hard work against larger defenders. Moreno won a ball and headed it back to Scalotto. Scalotto, by the way, is listed at five foot eight, and he was being marked by Bakari Sumare, who's listed at six foot four. And yet, somehow, Guije won the header and flicked it to Moreno, who headed the ball into the path of Eddie Gavin. Two one crew. But Columbus wasn't out of the woods yet. In the 62nd minute, John Thorrington hit a low line drive shot that deflected off a crew player in the box. William Hesmer had to dive to make a quick save. Ten minutes later, Blanco got loose in the penalty area and crossed to McBride, who got his foot to a ball and drove it towards the net. Fortunately, he hit it right at William Hesmer's feet, and he was able to save it cleanly. In the 90th minute, fire substitute Marco Papa drove a screamer that Hesmer had to dive to his left to save. And when Hesmer saved it, he snatched it out of thin air instead of knocking it down. It was the biggest save of the game. Because guess who? Brian McBride was standing just a couple of feet away, ready to pounce on any mistake William Hesmer made. As the minutes ticked off, it started to feel inevitable. Here's Dwight Burgess and Neil Sika calling the final moments of that game. To Alejandro Moreno, who then nurses the paint toward the corner flag. Echo, he's going to run the baseline, then has the ball taken away. Inside 30 seconds of what we're told will be three additional minutes. Ball played forward. Haydick gets his head of that one. Evans cleans it up. Releases to Moreno, who's well back. He goes to the far side. Open there is Rodgers. And Robbie Rodgers just does a little 360 dribble and now accelerates towards the corner flag. The balance of this one is on the wristwatch of the man in the middle. Columbus closing in on their very first trip ever to MLS Cup. Terry Vaughn checks his wristwatch. Ball is driven forward. Marshall is there. 
The defender of the year clears long. Near the crew bench, that'll do it! The Columbus crew are going to the 2008 MLS Cup. They are on their way to L.A. for the first time in club history. And as they have done all season long, whatever it takes, just do what you do. Could you have written a better script, Neil? Brian McBride comes back and gets the first goal of the game. But Columbus responds early in the second half. They stand up tall when they must, and they are on their way to the cup. What a finish. Hello, Hollywood, buddy. The Columbus crew had come full circle. They developed an identity beyond Brian McBride. The ghosts of previous Eastern Conference Finals had been banished to faded memory. Siggy Schmidt's rebuild was complete. And after that comeback against Chicago, no one doubted who the best team in Major League Soccer was in 2008. So there was only one thing left to do, finish the job. Stay tuned for a quick preview of next week's episode. But first, I want to say thanks again to all of you for listening. I am still blown away by all the nice things you've had to say about the podcast. I cannot thank you enough for listening. Uh, If you haven't yet, leave a review for this podcast wherever you get it. Um, iTunes, I know, certainly has a good review site. It actually helps other people find this podcast, which is why I harp on it all the time. So thank you. Additionally, I can't say enough thanks to my wife, Melissa, because she's done so much for us. She's amazing. Uh, (laughs) She's let me have all these nights and weekends to make this podcast. When you see her at a crew game, tell her I said thanks, because I haven't seen her, so I don't know what she looks like. Uh, I'd also like to thank Todd Markowitz and Cody Welling at 97.1 The Fan, who believed in this project, as well as John Zadar, who did all the artwork for the podcast episodes, as well as our logo. You can follow John at TheZadar, Z-I-D-A-R, on Twitter. Big thanks also goes out to all the guests who gave their time to help tell this story. And this week, a special thanks goes out to former crew PR guru, Dave Stephanie, who I have interviewed on this podcast, but he's also been very helpful in fact-checking and editing this podcast. So tremendously helpful to me personally. Thanks for that. He's a genuinely good source of information too. So if you ever see him and you want to know about something from the crew, he'll be able to tell you. All the game audio has been provided by Columbus Crew SC as well as ESPN. And a big thank you go out to both of them. Thanks again. The crew are just having a blast. I mean, they were all joking and laughing. And meanwhile, you know, the national media is gathering around. And they were kind of worried. They're like, are these guys taking this seriously? You know, are they you know, kind of overconfident? And he talked to the ref, say, hey, ref, do you hear what he say about my knee, about you want to kick me, whatever? And I talk in Spanish with the ref. I say, sorry, I'm not speaking English. But who makes a hundred yard run from right back and could get there? No one except Frankie Hayden. We've made soccer a thing in Columbus. And for me, that was a, a real prideful moment. 